Let's pray. O gracious Father, with the word that has now been read, we pray that your spirit will accompany the preaching of this word so that we might hear your words to us today, that you might speak and that we might hear, listen, and obey. So soften our hearts and prepare it so that we might respond with the proper faith and obedience. We pray all of this for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, with the election days away, I know what's probably on your mind. Now, I'm sure many of you have already voted, and others of you are preparing to vote for one of the two major party candidates, or maybe for neither one of them. As I talk with many of you about this election, I get the sense that while many may be voting for one of the major party candidates, they bemoan the fact that these are the two choices that we're left with. It feels like a vote for either candidate calls for some degree of compromise. Maybe you align with one man's policy more, but you feel that his character is deficient. Or maybe you think one man is more qualified, but he advances policies that you consider to be dangerous or deadly. You wish for someone who embodied everything you're looking for. You wish you didn't have to make a compromise. You wish that you could be able to choose the right person, the person that, that, that you so desire when it comes to determining who will lead you, who will govern you. Well, friends, if your hope for peace and prosperity is resting on a human politician, then I'm sorry, but you really have no choice. There are no perfect candidates who embody everything you're looking for, everything that you need. But this morning, I want to remind you, especially those of you who are Christians, that your hope for peace and prosperity ultimately rests not on the back of a, of a politician, but on the broad shoulders of your risen Lord. And unlike any po political candidate, any human being really, Jesus actually does embody all that we are looking for. Every quality, every virtue, every trait that you desire in someone who is going to lead you and govern you is found in him. You want someone who is strong and unwavering? But you also want someone who is tender and sympathetic? You desire a leader who, who upholds justice and order, but one who also shows mercy and compassion? You want someone invested with power and authority to lead, and at the same time, someone who leads through service and sacrifice? Well, all of that is found in Jesus. And no, he's not a jumble of contradictions. All of these diverse and varied attributes coexist in perfect harmony within the one person of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards would say that within the person of Christ, you will find an array of diverse excellencies. This past summer, I led a book club where we read select sermons of Edwards, and one that stood out to me in particular was a sermon called The Excellency of Christ, and it was based on our text on Revelation 5, verses 5 to 6 in particular, and in it, he exalts the Lord Jesus as a lion 
who is also a lamb. And he goes on to show in Scripture how there exists in Jesus what he calls an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He means that in the uniqueness of Christ, we will find a perfect union, a conjunction of seemingly opposite or diverse qualities and virtues, what he calls excellencies. And his main application is that everything that you are looking for in a sovereign or a servant, a king or a friend, a Lord or a savior is found in Jesus. So come to Jesus and receive him, all of him in all of his diverse excellencies to satisfy all of your needs. That's what Edwards' sermon is all about, and it inspired me to craft a sermon series on that general theme. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is that we're going to study passages centered on the person of Jesus Christ, highlighting his diverse excellencies, how he is able to capture and to embody all that we so admire. So this morning, what I want to do is a focus on that Revelation 5 passage, specifically on verses 1 to 10. Now, now, we've studied bits and pieces of Revelation before, and every time I've reminded you that Revelation is a book of apocalyptic literature. It falls under the category of a recognizable ancient genre that had distinct literary features. And a key distinctive of apocalyptic literature is the heavy usage of imagery and symbolism. Notably, the use of animals in order to represent certain persons and characters. And these creatures are often described in very fanciful ways. So in chapter 4, the Apostle John, who is the one who received and recorded this revelation, he sees four living creatures in heaven, each with a distinctive look. One like a lion, another like an ox, a third like a man, and the fourth like an eagle. And all four had six wings and were full of eyes. And in, in later chapters, he sees other creatures. He sees a dragon and a beast, both terrifying, both dreadful. Now, because we recognize this genre, we know not to interpret these images literally, but symbolically. These creatures symbolize unseen realities, and not just realities set in the future, but realities which exist in the present. They're just simply unseen, but they are here in the here and now. And so when we look at chapter 5, we, we have to be asking ourselves, what do we see? What imagery, what symbolism is being applied here? And then we have to ask, what does it mean? What's the proper interpretation? What's the intended message? And so, friends, this morning, I'm going to divide this message into two parts based on these two questions. First, what do we see? Well, we see, one, a sealed scroll, two, a conquering lamb, and three, uh, sorry, a conquering lion, and three, a slain lamb. But what does this all mean? Well, it means, first, the Lord conquers his enemies by means of suffering. Second, the Lord still reigns over us as a lamb. And third, the Lord embodies all we desire in a Savior. So let's consider what we are meant to see in this text. And as I said, there are three images that stand out for us. First, 
Behold a sealed scroll. Look at verse 1 with me. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, back in chapter 4, John receives this heavenly vision. And behold, he saw a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. And this royal figure is none other than the Lord God Almighty. And John sees God surrounded by by these four living creatures who, who all day and night never cease to proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this is not the first reference to these living creatures in Scripture. They first appear in the book of Ezekiel, and there they're identified for us as cherubim, angels of the highest order, guarded to task, uh, guarded with the task of, of uh, tasked with um, uh, to guard the holy things of God. Now, also, what we see here around the throne are 24 elders, and they represent the whole people of God. You have the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lord together, the people of God. Now, notice in verse 1 that there is something in God's right hand. We're told that it is a scroll with words written on front and back, and it's not legible. Because it's rolled up and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll, as it's going to be revealed in subsequent chapters, symbolizes the eternal plans of God. On it is written all that God has decreed to take place with respect to all creation throughout all history. But notice, notice how the scroll is sealed shut with seven seals. Now, seven is understood biblically to be the number of completeness. And so this scroll is completely shut. Now, what that would signify is that God's plans are unrevealed. They're unknowable. But it actually signifies far more than that. A sealed scroll means God's plans are unexecuted. They're unrealized. So if this scroll stays shut, That would mean that all of God's plans, all of his purposes, all of his decrees for this earth will not be carried out. This is not just a concern to reveal God's plans, but to see them realized in the world and in our lives. And so in verse two, John hears, quote, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Essentially, he's asking, who is worthy enough to carry out the royal decrees of God? Who is worthy enough to execute his eternal plans? But as the call goes out, it returns with a deafening silence. No one is worthy. Look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was found worthy. Not even an angel, not even a cherubim, one of these four living creatures. 
Not a king or queen on earth, not a president or a prime minister, no amount of power or money or intellect could make a person worthy. And let's face it, you're not worthy to open the scroll, and neither am I. Well, John realizes this, and this makes him weep. And wouldn't you weep? Wouldn't you grieve? To be confronted with the thought that God's glorious, redemptive purposes for this world might not come to pass. They might go unfulfilled. A sealed scroll means no blessed hope of a full and final redemption of our bodies and of creation itself. It means no assurance of God's preservation of his people through the trials and tribulations of life, especially as the end draws near. It means no final judgment to ensure perfect justice and perfect peace on this earth. It means no new heavens and no new earth where there's supposed to be no more tears and no more death and no more mourning, crying, or pain anymore. These promises will go unrealized if this scroll stays shut. That sealed scroll symbolizes all of our worst nightmares. Our greatest fears are wrapped up in there being a rolled up, sealed up scroll. And the fact that no one, no one is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll is lamentable, depressing news. Wouldn't you weep? But look, there's more. Listen to verse five. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Friends, this is the second image that we see in this text. Behold, a conquering lion. One of the 24 elders tells John to stop crying and to look, to behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David. Now, the tribe of Judah was long associated with the lion. Tradition tells us that the image of a lion was emblazoned on their battle standard. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and, and he calls Judah a lion's cup. He, he is crouching like a lion, ready to pounce on his enemies. And he goes on to prophesy that the scepter, the kingship, shall not depart from Judah, from the tribe of Judas. Now, now the scepter, the kingship, first came to Judah through King David, who was of the same tribe. And God reinforced this prophecy by promising to David that he would have an eternal throne. He said that he would preserve a king forever within the line of David. And so even during the Babylonian exile, where there was no king and was no throne and, and there was no Jerusalem, yet still in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, God promises that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from, its, from his roots shall bear fruit. And that, my friends, is why this line of the tribe of Judah is also described as the root of David. Now, just think with me of this imagery of a lion. 
I mean, no doubt it is meant to convey royalty and dignity and authority and power. I mean, lions are no pushovers. They are apex predators. They are on top of the food chain. They are the king of the beast. They are conquerors. Well, this line of the tribe of Judah has conquered all of his enemies, be it sin or Satan or death. He has conquered. He has defeated them all. Notice the so that in verse five. It's because he has conquered. That's why he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is worthy to reign as the sovereign king in accordance with God's eternal plans. So coming out of verse four, where where, where John is uh, out of uh, where John is so depressed and, and he's full of tears now In verse 5, he's hopeful and he's confident. He he rises up and and he dries his eyes and he looks over to where the elder is pointing. And what does he see? Well, obviously, he's expecting to see a lion. He's expecting to see a, a roaring lion tear onto the scene. But what does he see? He sees a bloody, bleeding lamb. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the third image that stands out. Behold, a slain lamb. Now, friends, let's take a moment to really take all of this in. Because what happens right here in verse six changes everything. It confronts all stereotypes. It challenges every expectation. It just goes to show that whatever you think about God, whatever assumptions you've made about him, get ready to drop them the moment you behold the real thing. God will not fit cleanly within your box. When you think that God is a lion, he's going to show up as a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a slain, slaughtered lamb. Now, of course, that immediately brings to mind the Passover lamb of Exodus and also the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, who looked, as we're told, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. What a contrast. I mean, just think about the contrast between these two images. A lion's job is to rule And to conquer. A lamb's job is to be slain and eaten. (laughs) What a contrast. They could not be further apart. And yet, and yet here they are in one person. These two images in Revelation 5 convey that admirable conjunction that Edward spoke of. that, That perfect union of two diverse excellencies. The royalty, dignity, and authority captured in the image of a conquering lion is laid in perfect juxtaposition with the gentleness, submissiveness, and humility of a slain lamb. If you keep reading in verse 6, just listen to the way this lamb is described. He's described as having seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, horns in the Bible communicate power 
and seven horns communicate complete power. The seven eyes communicate his omniscience, his complete wisdom and foreknowledge. So this is a lamb, but it's not your ordinary lamb. I mean, if you think about it, sheep are often described as weak, defenseless, and foolish. I mean, they'll just follow each other off a cliff. If they see green grass on the other side of a creek, they'll just jump right on in. They can't swim, and they end up drowning, but they'll still do it anyways. They have no means of defense against predators, no means but to bleat and cry. But this lamb is a gentle lamb, but one who possesses complete power and complete wisdom. He is a lamb who is a lion, a lion who is a lamb. If you want a good illustration of this, just consider Aslan in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In most scenes, Aslan is depicted as a mighty, ferocious lion who who makes your palms sweaty and your knees shake. But then there's this scene where He's playing with Lucy and Susan. He's, he's tossing them up in the air and catching them. He, he's laughing and, and rolling over together on a hilltop. What a contrast. And, and then there's this other scene where Aslan has gathered his army of Narnians at the stone table. And the children look up at him in that moment in speechless awe. And Lewis writes, People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. Aslan is both good and terrible, majestic and kind, great and gentle. And of course, the same can be said of our Lord Jesus. Within himself, you will find all the noble traits of a mighty lion and all the admirable qualities of a gentle lamb. You will find an array of diverse excellencies. So, friends, we've seen and considered these three key images in the text. Now it's time to ask, what does it mean? What are we to glean from these three symbolic images? Well, there are three implications that we can draw. First, the image of a lion who is a lamb suggests that the Lord conquers his enemies by means of suffering. In other words, he doesn't fight and win his battles like you would expect. He doesn't use the instruments of war. He doesn't conquer his enemies with an overwhelming display of force, but rather with a disarming display of sacrifice. Look at verse 9. And notice how this line of the tribe of Judah is counted worthy as a conqueror, worthy to open the scroll and to execute the plans of God by virtue of being slain. It's because he sacrificed himself. That's why he's worthy. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, friends, this lion conquers not by brute force, but by a bloody cross. He conquered sin 
by becoming sin for us. He conquered Satan by not fighting back. He conquered death by his own death. Bruce Metzger, a notable New Testament scholar, noted this counterintuitive nature in Christ. He says this, Instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurt of others. This really is the overarching message written throughout that scroll in chapter 5. That, that, that's, that, that message expresses the very heart of God's eternal and redemptive plans. Christ is a lion, but not a ferocious lion that hurts others. He is a lion who is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. And he did that by the blood of his cross, which paid a ransom, not to the devil, as if we were in his debt. No, the ransom was paid to God. You see, for we owed God our very lives. We owed him our obedience. And yet in our sin and rebellion, we rejected him and we fell short. But Christ, in going to the cross, took our debt upon himself. He took into himself our hurts. That is, both our sin in those times that we have hurt others, and our shame in those times that we were hurt by others. He bore all of that on the cross, and he received all the indignity that we deserve. In that Edwards sermon, he explained that on the cross, we behold Christ in the greatest degree of his humiliation. And yet at the same time, on the cross, we see the greatest demonstration of his glory. He writes this, Christ never was so dealt with as unworthy as in his last sufferings. And yet it is chiefly on account of them that he is accounted worthy. And in nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion in glorious strength, destroying his enemies as when he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. In his greatest weakness, he was most strong. And when he suffered most from his enemies, he brought the greatest confusion on his enemies. Thus, this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies was manifest in Christ, in his offering up himself to God in his last sufferings. Friends, if any of you are still bearing your sin and shame on your shoulders, well, then this is the day to repent. This is the day to turn away from sin and shame and to turn to Christ, the sacrificial lamb who took all of your hurt into himself and he died in your place. Behold the lamb who was slain. But notice in verse 6, Notice how it says that John saw a lamb standing. Think about that. Dead lambs don't stand. They just lay flat on the ground, dead. But this slain lamb is standing. And that means he's not dead anymore. He is risen. 
Jesus is victorious. But his victory came by means of sacrifice and suffering. Friends, do you have a category for that kind of victory? Do you have a category in your mind of a victory that comes by sacrifice and suffering? I mean, just think about this election. What kind of victory are you hoping for? A victory where one candidate proves to be more liked, to have more followers, to have more approval? A victory that that comes by means of winning and, and beating your opponent? Friends, if you put your hope in these electoral contests, you'll never be satisfied. They'll never bring you peace because they never end. In another four years, we're going to be back at it again. The one victory that will truly satisfy and sustain your peace into eternity is the victory that Jesus achieved, which came by means of losing and sacrificing himself to his enemies, that he might reconcile his enemies to God and make them his friends. That's the good news of the gospel. So that's one implication of these images. But what else does all of this mean? Second, this imagery suggests that the Lord still reigns over us as a lamb. In other words, Jesus' humility and gentleness was not simply reserved for his earthly ministry. It's not as if he put aside his lamb-like qualities when he rose from the dead, when he ascended on high to reign over us as if purely as a lion. No, he forever remains as a lion who is a lamb. Remember, this vision for us is a vision of heavenly realities right now. In heaven, Right now, there is a slain lamb who rules over us. A, a lamb is really not, is not just fitting uh, as an image to describe his earthly ministry. A lamb is actually an essential quality, a divine excellency of Christ. In the very last chapter of Revelation, in chapter 22, in the New Jerusalem, we're told that there will be the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so that tells us that Jesus, will, who, who is the Lion of Judah, will maintain that imagery as a Lamb. He still reigns over us today as a Lamb. He rules not by lording His authority over you, but by serving you. He governs not by coercion, but by persuasion, leading us by his spirit, wooing us by his love. That's how he rules and reigns. I I know many people today chafe at the idea of the lordship of Christ. They don't like the idea of, of Jesus having the authority to tell you how to live, to tell you what to do. Not, not much, not, not, not much of this resistance could, of course, be attributed to the stubbornness of our hearts. But could it be that we resist Jesus' lordship because we have a mistaken view of his authority? We assume his authority is exercised like a ferocious lion, overpowering his prey, crushing us and forcing us into submission. 
That's because that's our experience when we're dealing with earthly authorities. And so we just project that view of authority onto the Lord. But the authority of Christ is quite different. It's still royal and still absolute like a lion, but it's kindly and benevolent like a lamb. So when King Jesus tells you how to live your life, he's not trying to ruin your fun. He's not trying to stop you from being happy. He's actually trying to stop you from ruining your life, from ruining your eternity by chasing after the fleeting pleasures of sin, which in the end bring nothing but dissatisfaction and destruction, ruin and regret. Jesus wants so much better for you. His authority is a kindly and good authority aimed at doing you good. And, you know, friends, that should really shape the way that we exercise our authority on this earth. Notice in verse 10 how the various peoples of the earth will be ransomed by the blood and made into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So just as one day we shall reign with Christ on a new and renewed earth, even now, the way a Christian exercises authority should be shaped by the Lamb of God who reigns on high. His cross is not just the foundation of our salvation. It's the pattern. His cross is the pattern for the saved life. It's the example for us to imitate. So whatever authority you have been entrusted with, friends, use it not to suppress, not to strong arm others to do you good, but to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others. And what that means for us in a self-governed nation like ours is that in an election, you're actually using Your authority. So friends, use it well. Use it as a lamb. Well, there's one more implication to draw here. And I'll close with this, which is really the point I made in the very beginning. Third, the image of a lion who is a lamb suggests that the Lord embodies all that we desire in a savior. In other words, Every quality, every virtue, every trait that you desire in someone who's going to lead you or govern you, someone who's going to serve as your Lord and King, everything you desire is found in Jesus. Unlike every election that we're going to face, when it comes to Jesus, there's no need to compromise. There's no need to hold your nose when you're choosing him. He's everything you desire. So just think with me. Just think of a savior. Think of someone that you are going to give your life to. Do you desire that savior to be great and noble, an imposing figure, someone rightly to be feared and revered? Do you expect that savior to be someone worthy enough for you to bow in submission? Is that not Christ? Is he not high and honorable enough for you? Do you desire, though, for that honorable Savior to be still willing to come down to your level 
someone who is familiar with suffering, someone who can sympathize with you in your weakness? Do you want a Savior who is like you in every respect? Well, is that not Christ? Is he not humble and sympathetic enough for you? And and do you desire a Savior who has gone before you and paved the way, who is near to God and able to speak to him on your behalf? But do you also desire a Savior who is not so far and ahead of you in heaven, but who is also near to you and close to you by your side whenever you need him? Is that not Christ? Is he not at the same time at the Father's side and at your side? And has he not made himself available to you if you would only turn to him and trust in him and put your life into his hands? Friends, I know that anxious days lie before us. I know that you might lose some sleep this week. You're probably going to be distracted by what's going on in the news. It's going to be a restless week. But keep this in mind. Keep in mind that the importance of who sits in that chair in the Oval Office pales in comparison to who sits on that throne in heaven. We don't know right now who will be sitting in that chair come Inauguration Day in January. But we already know who sits on the throne of God and of the Lamb. So don't be anxious. Rest in that truth, and you will have some rest this week. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this heavenly, glorious vision. This vision of not just what is to come, but what is happening right now in the unseen realities of heaven. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who has come to us as both lion and lamb to rule over us and to serve us through his sacrifice. Oh, Jesus, we love you and we worship you as everything we desire everything we need. It's all in you, in you alone, and in your name we pray. Amen.